Secretary Newland, thank you for coming before the committee today and coming not just once, but twice this week to testify before uh, this committee. We appreciate the time that you and Assistant Secretary Holgren gave us last night in a classified setting. As we meet here today, Russia is engaged in one of the most significant troop buildups that we have seen along Ukraine's border. To anyone paying attention, this looks like more than posturing, more than attention-seeking. The Kremlin's actions clearly pose a real threat of war. I want to be crystal clear to those listening to this hearing in Moscow, Kiev, and other capitals around the world. A Russian invasion will trigger devastating economic sanctions, the likes of which we have never seen before. I proposed a suite of options last month in an amendment to the NDAA. The Russian banking sector would be wiped out. Sovereign debt would be blocked. Russia would be removed from the SWIFT payment system. Sectoral sanctions would cripple the Russian economy. Putin himself, as well as his inner circle, would lose access to bank accounts in the West. Russia would effectively be cut off and isolated from the international economic system. Let me be clear. These are not run-of-the-mill sanctions. What is being discussed is at the maximum end of the spectrum, or as I have called it, the mother of all sanctions. And I hope that we can come together in a bipartisan way to find a legislative path forward soon so that we can achieve that. If Putin invades Ukraine, the implications will be devastating for the Russian economy, but also for the Russian people. The Ukrainian military forces of 2021 are not the Ukrainian military forces of 2014. They are well-equipped thanks to the United States and our allies. They are well-trained. They have years of combat experience. And most importantly, they have every incentive to fight. Now, Russia clearly has conventional advantages. But is the Kremlin really ready to face a bloody persistent, and drawn-out insurgency? How many body bags is Putin willing to accept? In New Jersey, we have a large Ukrainian diaspora. I know Ukrainians well. I know their fighting spirit. Is Russia ready for Ukrainians from every walk of life, from boys and men and grandmothers, to rise up and undermine and destroy a Putin-installed puppet government? Do Russian families really want to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the ego of a dictator in the Kremlin? Is the Kremlin truly prepared for a 1980s Afghanistan all over again? In short, the Kremlin may want to reconsider. Putin clearly wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, amass power, and expand Russia's borders. But you know what? It turns out that Ukraine gets a vote. And the Ukrainian people clearly want to be part of the West. They don't want to be subservient to Moscow. They want a better future for their children. Given Ukraine's resolve, Putin may want to reconsider. There are off-ramps available if he chooses to follow them. Finally, Putin is clearly underestimating our allies. This is not a question of the United States versus Russia. Our European allies and partners share our alarm. 
They are willing to act, and if pushed, they will stand in solidarity with Ukraine and against Kremlin aggression. Given Europe's resolve, Putin may want to reconsider. This is a critical time. There still may be a window to deter the Kremlin from deciding to invade, but we must be clear and united about what awaits Russia if it chooses that unwise path. I look forward to hearing about the administration's diplomatic efforts, including a readout of this morning's call with Putin by President Biden. I look forward to hearing how we are supporting Ukraine's military. I look forward to hearing how we are leading a sanctions effort with allies. Let's not mince words. This is not a time for half measures. If Putin does decide to act, if he invades Ukraine, the response will be swift and will be unequivocal. Putin doesn't get to redraw the map of Europe. Europeans should be thinking about that. He doesn't get to bully the people of an independent nation into submission. He may dictate the course of events inside of Russia, but he does not get to dictate the course of events in Ukraine. Ukrainians won't stand for it, and neither should we. Finally, this critical moment calls for unity of purpose, unity with our partners in Kiev, unity with our allies, especially those who value democracy and the rule of law, and unity amongst ourselves in this body. As we have during past instances of peril, the Senate must be united in sending a clear and strong message that unwarranted aggression will not stand. I urge our members to come together in that unity of purpose in the days to come. And with that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Richard's opening Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. That was an extensive opening statement. And uh, I would like to join uh, in the uh, chairman's remarks. Uh, th this is a clearly, clearly bipartisan uh, matter. And uh, rather than going over it again, uh, I will simply say that uh, those who are listening, both our allies and those uh, in Moscow, listen carefully to uh, what's been said here. Uh, I join in those remarks. Uh, my sentiment is the same as the chairman's. I think that uh, I can tell you that the sentiment uh, in the United States Senate uh, is very much as described uh, by the chairman. Um, we haven't had a readout yet on what the phone call was like this morning. I don't know whether you're ready to, uh, ready to do that here yet or not. Um, wh whatever happens, uh, I hope you'll communicate back to the administration, although I suspect it'll be there before you get back, of the resolve that uh, this body has uh, to move forward if indeed uh, such, uh, such an act by Russia occurs. Uh, with that, uh, I'll yield back. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rich. Well, that will turn to um, Secretary Newland. Uh, thank you again for coming before the committee. Uh, you've heard some of my framing questions uh, at the beginning. Um, we look forward to your testimony and then to uh, the dialogue that will ensue. So we recognize you at this time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Rich, members of the committee for the opportunity to appear before you today and for the time that we were able to spend in classified session yesterday to discuss our shared concern, what I hear is a bipartisan concern, about the buildup of Russian forces on Ukraine's border and in occupied Crimea. First, let me review what we are seeing. Over the past six weeks, Russia has stepped up planning for potential further military action in Ukraine positioning close to 100,000 troops around Ukraine's eastern and northern borders and from the south via the Crimean Peninsula. 
Russian plans and positioning of assets also include the means to destabilize Ukraine from within and an aggressive information operation in an attempt to undermine Ukrainian stability and social cohesion and to pin the blame for any potential escalation on Kiev and on NATO nations, including the United States. Russia's military and intelligence services are continuing to develop the capability to act decisively in Ukraine when ordered to do so, potentially in early 2022. The intended force, if fully mobilized, would be twice the size of what we saw last spring, including approximately 100 battalion tactical groups or nearly all of Russia's ready ground forces based west of the Urals. We don't know whether President Putin has made a decision to attack Ukraine or to overthrow its government, but we do know he's building the capacity to do so. Much of this comes right out of Putin's 2014 playbook, but this time it is much larger and on a much more lethal scale. So despite our uncertainty about exact intentions and timing, we must prepare with our allies and partners for all contingencies, even as we push Putin to reverse course. Now to what we're doing. First, we're engaging Russia at all levels to urge Moscow to pull back and to settle any concerns with Ukraine or with the transatlantic community through diplomacy. As you know, the President sent CIA Director Burns to Moscow in early November. Secretary Blinken engaged with Foreign Minister Lavrov last Thursday. National Security Advisor Sullivan and I and all of us have been active with our Russian counterparts. And President Biden gave that message directly to President Putin in a more than two-hour phone call this morning. We're also warning, and the President warned President Putin today, of severe costs and consequences, including deploying far harsher economic measures than we've used before if Russia chooses the path of confrontation and military action. Second, we're engaging intensively with Ukrainian President Zelensky and his government to strengthen their defenses, support their preparedness, and help them fight disinformation, while also urging, as you did, Mr. Chairman, national unity and vigilance in the face of Russian efforts to divide or provoke them. Since 2014, the United States has provided Ukraine with $2.4 billion in security assistance, including $450 million this year alone. We are committed to Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, and that is unwavering. Third, during Secretary Blinken's meetings at NATO and the OSCE last week, and in countless bilateral meetings at all levels, including the President's engagements directly with key Europeans, we're working with allies and partners to send a united message. Russia must de-escalate, it must pull back its forces and return to negotiations. But if Russia attacks Ukraine, we will be united in imposing severe consequences on Moscow for its actions, including high-impact economic measures that we have refrained from using in the past. And at NATO, we are working closely with allies to prepare to reinforce NATO's defenses on its eastern flank as that is needed. None of us seeks confrontation or crisis. Certainly, the Russian people don't need it as they come out of a difficult COVID period. 
diplomacy remains the best route to settle the conflict in Donbass and address any other problems or grievances. The Minsk agreements offer the best basis for negotiations, and the U.S. is prepared to support a revived effort if the parties welcome that. More broadly, President Biden continues to believe that a more stable and predictable U.S.-Russia relationship is in both countries' interests. We will continue to have very deep disagreements with the Kremlin on human rights, on Mr. Navalny's treatment, on press and NGO freedom, on Belarus, on cyber threats, on election interference, on detained American citizens, and on embassy staffing and many other things. President Biden has, including today, and will continue to raise these issues with President Putin. And yet, as we all know, when the United States and Russia can work together, as we are doing now on Iran and in the nascent strategic stability talks, we offer both our citizens and people everywhere the prospect of a better future. But what we could and should do together will be put at risk if President Putin chooses more aggression against Ukraine. And Senators, while I have you captive, I want to thank this committee for moving so many of our state nominees out of committee in recent weeks and even getting some of them confirmed. I met with Ambassador Flake this morning, uh, one of your previous colleagues and now one of our colleagues, for example. But with 85 nominees pending consideration before the Senate, American diplomacy remains at quarter power at Main State and around the world. At this time of myriad security challenges, including the one we're talking about today, every empty slot around the world diminishes our global influence and creates space for our adversaries to fill. So as, a Christmas, as Christmas and New Year's approach, the Senate could give American diplomacy no greater gift than to get our folks confirmed and off to work. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We'll start a series of five-minute rounds. Uh, I'll recognize myself. First of all, with reference to the uh, president's call with President Putin today, uh, is, is, would you characterize the, uh, President Biden's messages to se uh, President Putin as clear, and of unequivocal, of delineating the consequences of any such invasion, including sanctions as such as that uh, I've mentioned and others that have we mentioned yesterday in a classified setting? Absolutely, Mr. Chairman. The President could not have been clearer. All right. And in that respect, have we also uh, shared that this is not just a question of the United States engaging in these uh, uh, very significant sanction activities, but a, an increasing multilateral uh, uh, reality for uh, President Putin if he uh, makes the mistake of invading Ukraine? Absolutely. We've said it ourselves, but the Europeans and, and other allies are increasingly saying it as well. You might have seen a press conference today that uh, Commission uh, Chairwoman van der Leyen gave in Brussels, in which she made absolutely clear that the EU would also uh, join in very consequential economic measures of the kind that they have not employed before. Much has been said about uh, Nord Stream 2, somehow that it would be the, the, the be-all and end-all of not having this present set of circumstances. I don't believe that for a moment, uh, because there's far more uh, engagement here than that. But. Uh, are the Germans uh, ready to take significant actions with us if, in fact, Russia invades uh, Ukraine? 
I believe they are, and today is the first day of the new German government, as you know, but we've already begun intensive consultations with them. Now, uh, do we have a calculus as to um, how much pain uh, Putin is willing to uh, subject uh, himself to in order to invade Ukraine, meaning how many uh, lives as Russia's uh, sons uh, are uh, in, in the mix in terms of uh, particularly a, a long-term uh, insurgency that would exist by the Ukrainian people rising up? Uh, Chairman, I thought you sent President Putin a very powerful message yourself this morning that the Ukrainians are a tough nation. Uh, they will not stand by. Should President Putin order his forces into Ukraine or otherwise try to destabilize their democracy in profound ways, I think the Russians will have a very big fight on their hands, uh, that there will be severe casualties for them. And frankly, it's uh, hard to comprehend why, why, at a time when Russia itself has one of the highest rates of COVID around the world and the Russian people are suffering in other ways, Putin would want to spend the money in the Russian treasury, uh, hundreds of millions of rubles, on a war nobody needs with Ukraine rather than on building back better inside Russia, which is what his people are asking for. Would it be fair to say that because of the uh, mounting Russian troops, which I understand is like close to 170,000 or so amassed along uh, Ukraine's uh, various borders, that in fact it has caused the Ukrainians to have to mobilize in a way that they might not have before? That's right. With, as I said, uh, close to 100,000 troops now and, and many, many more planned, the Ukrainians are having to think differently about their own security. And in fact, some of the defensive lethal support that the U.S. has given Ukraine over the, the years, they've had in storage containers, and I think we'll now see them have to put that stuff out and, and uh, be thinking very hard about their, their own civil defense. And finally, uh, if uh, hopefully President Putin uh, takes a different course and doesn't invade Ukraine, that doesn't mean that Ukraine's stability is reasserted because there are other ways to try to destabilize the Ukrainian government. Are we working uh, with the president of Ukraine to try to firm up their stability institutionally as well as against cyber uh, and other uh, efforts to undermine uh, the government of Ukraine? We are, Mr. Chairman. As, as I said in my opening, there are also significant Russian efforts to destabilize Ukraine from within and to pose uh, catastrophic risks for the Zelensky government. We have been very clear in sharing our concerns and, and intelligence that we have with the Ukrainians and in supporting efforts that they are making, not only in the, in the cyber realm, but in the civil defense realm uh, to protect uh, their institutions and their critical infrastructure. Thank you. Senator Rich. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, have, are you able to give us a, a readout on this call this morning? Uh, Ranking Member Risch, just to say that uh, the White House is doing a public readout simultaneously with this hearing, so I will 
let them take the lead there. And the president is also uh, having a consultation with major European allies this afternoon. And I think there'll be a further readout thereafter, just to say that my understanding is that the call went some two and a quarter hours or longer with consecutive translation that the president was able to, in a very, very fulsome way, uh, express our concerns, uh, express the consequences of any further Russian aggression, but also to make clear to President Putin that if there are questions that he has or grievances that he has that could be worked through with diplomacy, either vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine or vis-a-vis -vis the US or vis-a-vis -vis NATO, that we are open to having these conversations and that aggression is the wrong way to go. You've heard uh, the comments that have been made by the chairman and myself over the last couple of days. Do you think that uh, the president was that strong when he uh, communicated to uh, Putin where the US is on this issue? I'm confident that he was. You think Putin understood? You know, I, I try very hard not to get inside the mind of President Putin. I'll leave that for others. Thank you very much. Um, we'll look forward to getting a readout from the White House. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, Madam Secretary, first of all, uh, thank you very much uh, for your service. I appreciated the opportunity in the closed session. And, and let me uh, follow up a little bit of our concerns. First of all, I agree completely with the chair uh, in regards to the maximum pressure being uh, exhibited at this stage and that uh, we need to show unity and make it clear that it would be a heavy price to pay if Russia indeed does further incursions in, into Ukraine. But, but I want to get to an issue that should concern all of us. Um, Crimea was taken over by Russia in 2014. We impose sanctions, Europe opposed sanctions, and the status is still with Russian occupation of Crimea. So yes, we have to be prepared to take action against Russia if they incur further into Ukraine, but we need to have a strategy that goes beyond just the initial response on our activities that makes it increasingly more difficult for Russia uh, to continue this behavior uh, over if, if it extends uh, for any length of time. So I, I guess my first question to you is, do, do we have uh, conversations with our allies that we have to be prepared for any contingency, including the possibility that our initial response, if Russia invades Ukraine, may require us to escalate and make it even more challenging for Russia to continue this behavior? Absolutely, Senator Cardin. Uh, we are talking about day one measures, day five measures, day 10 measures, et cetera. And the, but uh, it's also important, I think, for President Putin to understand, as the president conveyed to him today, that this will be different than it was in 2014 if he goes in. You will recall then that our sanctions escalated somewhat gradually as he didn't stop moving. Uh, this time, the intent is to make clear that the initial 
sanctions in response to any further aggressive moves in Ukraine will be extremely significant and isolating for Russia and for Russian business and for the Russian people. Russia has substantial energy resources. Are we considering how to handle the energy sector in the event of Russia's incursion? Uh, we already talked a little bit about uh, Nord Stream 2, but if, if we could talk about the way that they have weaponized energy in the past, but yet it's a resource that Mr. Putin might believe he'll still be able to utilize even with sanctions from the West. How do we handle the energy sector? Well, this is part of what we are discussing with our allies and partners as we build the sanctions packages that we need to understand the exposure of allies and partners, but also the risks to Mr. Putin and to his government. As you know, uh, energy is the cash cow that enables uh, these kinds of military deployments. So Putin needs the energy to flow as, as much as the consumers need it. But more broadly, uh, we have been counseling Europe for almost a decade now to reduce its dependence on Russian energy, including our opposition to Nord Stream 2 and our opposition to Nord Stream 1 and our opposition to, to Turkstream and Turkstream 2, and to come uh, to find alternative sources of hydrocarbons, but also to continue their efforts to go green and end their dependencies. And how are our discussions going with the Ukrainian government in regards to the uh, contingency of, of a Russian incursion as to what type of assistance they'll need from the United States? Uh, conversations are, are ongoing at, at every level. We had uh, Secretary Blinken talk to President Zelensky yesterday. Uh, President Biden will speak to him either later today or tomorrow. We've had the defense minister, the foreign minister, the national security advisor in Washington. Uh, Secretary Blinken also sat with the foreign minister a week ago in, um, uh, in, uh, on the margins of the OSCE meeting in Stockholm. And we have uh, a very robust team in the embassy and uh, our advisors in Kyiv now. And, uh, you know, I, I would ask our DOD colleagues to talk to you about the conversations that they're having with counterparts in Ukraine as well, which are also uh, pretty fulsome. Thank you. I understand we're joined by Senator Young by WebEx. Serious consequences for any Russian aggression. Well, you said the U.S. would impose high-impact economic sanctions. These are sort of vague terms, and uh, they don't provide enough substance to serve uh, as an effective deterrence, one might, uh, one might think. So can you provide any more specifics about what measures are being considered by the administration to counter Russian aggression? Uh, Senator Young, uh, I again want to thank the committee for the opportunity to speak in classified session yesterday where I was uh, quite clear and specific about the various measures that we are working on internally and that we are working on with our allies and partners. Um, I uh, would say that the president was equally precise in his conversation with President Putin. Uh, didn't come as a surprise to President Putin because he was very aware of the conversation which we are having with our allies 
which is part of the strategy, obviously, but suffice to say uh, that the impact would be extremely profound. I don't think it serves the policymaking process to uh, go any further than that in this setting. Uh, I, I know you'll understand. I do. I do understand. Um, Russia is already subject, Ambassador, to uh, extensive sanctions. So why have these sanctions uh, not served as an effective deterrent thus far? Well, Senator, I think you and I have had this conversation um, before. You know, sanctions, I, I personally believe that the sanctions that we imposed in a steadily increasing fashion in 2014 and in 2015 in response to Russia's incursions first in Crimea and then in Donbass did have the effect of stopping the Russian forces and President Putin for, from going further, uh, particularly when we got to the sectoral sanctions in 2015. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, when we began to see this latest buildup and when we began to make clear that we would take economic measures uh, that are far more severe than those we've used before, I think it did come as somewhat of a surprise uh, to President Putin and to his, uh, and the group around him. And so they are having to, to factor that in. But you know, in every sanctions conversation, you apply them, they have some effect, they have to be updated because countries find a way to, to navigate, as you know. We've also discussed, Ambassador, that sanctions tend to be more effective in a, in a multilateral sort of capacity. Um, are you able to uh, share with, with, with me and those who are watching or listening uh, how, you, how you assess our NATO partners would respond to a Russian invasion of Ukraine? So, Senator, we are having a very robust conversation with our NATO allies, with our uh, allies and partners in the European Union, obviously, obviously with Ukraine. Uh, I think the statement, as I said earlier, by uh, Chairman of the EU Commission van der Leyen this morning about the EU's uh, strength of conviction with regard to the potential need to deploy more and far harsher sanctions this morning uh, speaks to the unity that we are building, uh, as did the very strong statements that we had from, from NATO when the Secretary was there last week. Um, and again, the President is continuing that diplomacy today, as, as we all are at every level. Ambassador, uh, President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov have repeatedly indicated that they uh, seek to deny uh, any potential path uh, to NATO membership for Ukraine and other Eastern European countries. Does the administration view this demand as, as a valid issue for negotiation? No, we do not. And President Biden made that point crystal clear to President Putin today that uh, the issue of who joins NATO is an issue for NATO to decide. It's an issue for applicant countries to decide that no other outside power will or may have a veto or a vote in those decisions. Thank, Thank you, you, Ambassador. I have no further questions. Uh, Senator Shaheen is recognized.
Ambassador Newland, thank you for being here today and for the briefing that you gave us yesterday. I think it's very clear listening to the members of this committee that there is strong bipartisan concern about what Russia might be thinking about with respect to Ukraine and support on this committee and in the Senate for Ukraine and for doing everything we can to ensure that they remain a sovereign nation. Um, Senator Portman and I offered an amendment to this year's NDAA in that vein to increase military assistance um, and raise the amount of assistance that could go to lethal weapons. Are there other things that you think we could be doing in this Congress that would further show support for Ukraine? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think the, the Congress and the American people in a bipartisan fashion have been enormously generous, as uh, I mentioned in my opening, $450 million in lethal defensive support uh, heretofore. You know, I think uh, we need to continue to look at other things that the Ukrainians need in terms of cyber resilience, in terms of um, communications uh, capability, in terms of uh, educating the next generation, all these kinds of things. Uh, but we will not be shy about coming to you as we, as we need support. And your, the bipartisan spirit here is really gratifying. Thank you. Last week, Senator Johnson and I met with a number of members of parliament from Estonia. And one of the things that they talked about was the importance of European unity with respect to Ukraine. But they were also quite anxious that we reconsider um, whether or not to station more troops in the Baltic nations, something that I've also heard from Poland and some of the other Eastern European countries. Can you tell us if that's on the table for consideration as we're thinking about how to respond to what Putin is doing? Yes, Senator. At the NATO ministerial last week, there was a commitment among allies that we needed more advice and more options from our NATO military authorities with regard to the consequences of any uh, move by, by Russia deeper into Ukraine and what that would mean for the eastern edge of the alliance and what it would mean about our need to be more uh, forward deployed in the east. Um, and again, uh, I think that was also a, a subject of conversation uh, in this morning's phone call. Um, Belarus now that it is, seems to be totally within Russia's um, control, also presents another front for the potential for Russia to invade Ukraine. Can, can you speak to whether we view what's happening in Belarus in that way? I know the Ukrainians view it that way because we heard that when we were in Halifax for the International Security Forum and met with some Ukrainian officials. Well, as, as you know, Senator, the situation in Belarus is, is just tragic and really um, concerning in, in many, many ways, uh, which is why the administration, along with the European Union in a multilateral way, increased sanctions just last week, including blocking the sale to us or to Europe of one of the great sources of uh, Lukashenko's money, uh, potash, et cetera, and, and sanctioned some dozens more uh, uh, Belarusians 
uh, responsible for the, the violence and intimidation there, and particularly now for the weaponization of migrants, pushing, you know, accepting them from third countries and then pushing them against the uh, EU's border in a very cynical and dangerous way. But I think you're talking about the potential as Lukashenko becomes more and more dependent on the Kremlin and gives up more and more of Belarus's sovereignty, something that he told his people he would never do, um, that Russia could actually use Belarusian territory to march on Ukraine and or mask its forces as Belarusian forces. Uh, all of those, those are both things that, that we are watching and it was particularly concerning uh, to see President Lukashenko make a change in his own posture with regard to Crimea. He had long declined to recognize uh, Russia's claim on Crimea, but he changed tack a week ago, which is concerning. Um, very much. I'm out of time, but I just wanted to raise an issue you brought up in your opening remarks with respect to the effort to confirm our ambassadors and State Department officials and the the effect it's having currently of hamstringing our foreign policy efforts around the world. And I know this committee has worked very hard in a bipartisan way to try and move those appointments, but they are being held up on the floor by a small group of um, Republican colleagues who have other issues who don't want us to move forward. And I hope that you will share with everybody on this committee and those holding up those appointments, what that means to our diplomacy and our foreign policy when we can't get our people in place to protect American interests. Uh, thank you for that, Senator, and thank you for um, how stalwart you've been on this subject. Um, as I said in my opening, we are on the field at quarter power as our adversaries and as the autocrats are on the field at full power and frankly on the march. We need all of our assistant secretaries confirmed in the department. We still have, I think, less, less than 10 confirmed and we need all of our ambassadors out at the field as, as good as our charges are. It's not the same as having been the president's choice and to have the advice and consent in a bipartisan way of, of this Senate. So 85 uh, of our best uh, political and career awaiting floor action and think about the message that that sends to Russia and China. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Undersecretary Newland, welcome. I certainly appreciate you spending some time with us last night in a secured briefing. Uh, and I think it's important that you're here today. Uh, I, I want to associate myself with remarks of the chairman and the, and the ranking member. I think if there's one thing that Vladimir Putin ought to understand is how unified we are. I mean, we, there are many things that divide us politically in this country, but when it comes to pushing back on Russian aggression, um, supporting countries like Ukraine that are trying to develop their freedom, free themselves from the legacy of corruption from their former involvement with the Soviet Union, uh, we are very strongly united. Um, often, you know, within this discussion, you were talking about an uh, unprecedented level of uh, sanctions. I think it'd be important for uh, the public, for the Senate, for Congress, uh, but for Vladimir Putin to, to really 
understand in somewhat granular detail what we're talking about, uh, what we'd impose on them and how, how harmful it would be to Russia. You know, unfortunately, to Russian people. Uh, but Vladimir Putin ought to be concerned about the Russian population uh, more concerned than we are. Uh, we can't allow this. So can you really describe the types of sanctions that you are contemplating and pushing with our European allies? Senator, thanks for, thanks for that statement of, of unity and for, for your strong statement here today. Um, as we discussed last night in some detail, uh, what we are talking about would amount to essentially isolating Russia completely from the global financial system with all of the fallout that that would entail for Russian business, for the Russian people, for their ability to, to work and travel and trade. Uh, and we are looking at the full suite of options. Um, I think in the, in the context of the diplomacy that we are doing and the work that we're doing internally, I was gratified to have a chance to go through some of those specific measures in the classified session yesterday. Um, but going beyond that in this open session, I think um, doesn't um, help us get from here to there. But we, every, everything is on the table, I would say, if, if that is helpful. One thing that I believe certainly the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is pretty unified on, it may not be unanimous, was our support for sanctions against Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that I think we were all, many of us, were very disappointed that uh, those sanctions were not fully implemented and the construction continued. Um, I can't think of a, a more powerful way to punish uh, Russian aggression than by rolling back what progress has been made and if at all possible, uh, prevent the Nord Stream 2 from ever being completed. Uh, is that something that is being discussed with allies? Is that something that's being contemplated? Absolutely. And as, if, as you recall from the July U.S.-German statement, that was very much uh, in that statement that if that any moves Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, would have a direct impact on the pipeline, and that is our expectation and the conversation that we're having. So again, direct impact is one thing, but I, I'm, I'm literally talking about rolling back the, the, the pipeline. And it, it, loosely define that, but I mean taking action that will prevent it from ever becoming operational. I think if President Putin moves on Ukraine, our expectation is that the pipeline will be suspended. Well, I certainly hope uh, that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee would take up uh, legislation to go beyond just suspending it, but from ending it permanently. But anyway, thank you, uh, Undersecretary Newland. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Um, Senator uh, Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, uh, and thank you, Undersecretary Newland, for uh, speaking with us today and for briefing the committee in classified session and for all the ways uh, that you've been responsive and engaged as these uh, important uh, developments have unfolded. Um, like I believe all of my colleagues, I'm gravely concerned about developments along the Russia-Ukraine border and the very real threat uh, that Putin um, poses to security stability um, throughout Europe. Um, in addition to serving on this committee, uh, I chair the Appropriations Subcommittee that funds the State Department and USAID. What tools and funding within the FY22 State and Foreign Operations Bill do you think would be most effective in deterring Russian aggression 
and in supporting our partners uh, in Ukraine, yes, but also in other places uh, throughout Eastern Europe, in Georgia, and elsewhere. Uh, Senator, I'd like to come back to you with specifics, if I may, because I think we have not uh, yet gone through chapter and verse if Putin does not heed the concerns and the warnings uh, what we will need to strengthen NATO, to strengthen partners uh, who live on the edges of Ukraine, uh, and, and to beef up our, our diplomatic presence as necessary. So I'd like to come back to you. But one thing I will say is that... Uh, I think we can, and, and I know this is close to your heart as well, need to do better in our uh, global engagement center and in the way we speak to audiences around the world, um, and particularly on, on these kinds of subjects. Well, thank you. And I look forward to working with you on finding ways we can strengthen our investments. This week is the Summit for Democracy, which I expect will kick off a year of action. Uh, I've introduced a bipartisan bill today with Senator Graham that would strengthen our investment. In particular, I think it's important that we invest in anti-corruption activists, in pro-democracy reformers, um, and in folks uh, who are in countries under real pressure, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Georgia, many others, um, that we find ways to shield them um, from authoritarian surveillance and from um, the digital tools of repression. Um, a lot of us have been um, struck at the, the strength and the speed and the breadth uh, of Putin's military uh, preparations, could Russia have any alternative goals in the region other than invading Ukraine? What other goals might they be pursuing? And how can we ensure that our statements of determination in partnership with the president to impose sanctions, um, to rally our European allies, and to stand up to Putin's aggression, uh, which of those actions might be most successful in thwarting any other objectives that Putin might have through this military buildup? You know, I think the concern is that President Putin's public lamentations and private lamentations about the demise of the Soviet Union have gotten um, noisier and stronger over the years. And just in the last year, in the last six months, he has increased his public comments to the effect that the sovereign nation of Ukraine is actually a, a part of Russia, belongs to Russia, et cetera. So the concern is that he's actually, as a legacy project, seeking to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And then, you know, would his appetite be fulfilled with that eating, or would he seek uh, to, to go further? So I think this is why the unity here uh, in the Senate, unity in the House, unity within the United States, unity in Ukraine, unity with our NATO allies and partners, and the significant consequences that we're talking about uh, are so important and, and making clear that we are absolutely ready there. I also think it's important to talk to the Russian people, as I have said to you before and have said to this committee, uh, nobody wants or needs war at this moment, least of all the people of Russia who deserve better schools, better hospitals, better infrastructure, better health care, and that's where the wealth of that great country ought to be going, not on sending their boys to freeze on the Ukrainian front. Thanks. Uh, I agree, and uh, I just want to close by emphasizing um, the simple, forceful clarity with which you just testified uh, before this committee. 
that the United States' commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence is unwavering. Um, I recently led a bipartisan delegation that went to meet with leaders of the EU, of the UK, and of the new German government. Um, it is my hope that they will be as unwavering and clear and forceful in their actions as that statement, um, and that all of us on this committee uh, will join in supporting your work and the President's work, and that we will work with one voice to deter Russian aggression against Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I appreciate, uh, Under Secretary Newland, your, uh, your work and your testimony today and yesterday and the work that you do for our country. Um, I wish to associate myself also with the comments of the chairman and the ranking member. Uh, we are united in our commitment to a free and, and sovereign nation uh, in Ukraine. Um, I want to associate myself with the comments of uh, uh, Senator Portman last night as he uh, spoke about the resilience and strength and character of the people uh, of Ukraine uh, and, uh, and his uh, conviction that, uh, that were they to ever be in, uh, invaded by a foreign foe like Russia, uh, that they would stand uh, aggressively and defend themselves. Uh, and, uh, and if perchance they were unsuccessful in ultimately uh, having victory, that there would be insurgency that would continue that would, uh, would make sure that anyone who invaded them uh, suffered a very high price for having done so. I'd like to associate myself with the comments of uh, Senator Cruz as well, uh, who indicated that the uh, decision by this administration and prior administrations to uh, uh, allow the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, contributed to uh, Russia's uh, feeling that they could amass troops on the border and potentially uh, use their their threat to uh, to obtain uh, something that they uh, they deeply desire. Um, I, I'm one of those that looks at Russia, uh, and I guess I'll associate myself with Senator Barrasso's comments that uh, that uh, he was quoting. I think uh, Senator McCain saying that Russia is a um, a, a mafia-run gas station parading as a country, and um, I, I, Russia has real problems. Uh, their population is declining. Their industrial base is weak. Uh, but they have extraordinary natural resources. And uh, as I look at, at Russia, I'm concerned that their ambition does not stop with Ukraine, but that their, uh, Putin's ambition personally uh, is much broader and that what happens in Ukraine uh, is, is a, an appetizer for, uh, for a growing appetite on his part. And, and I'd like to get your perspectives on what you, what you believe or what the administration believes uh, Putin's uh, ambition is, where he in, intends to lead his troops and his nation over the coming years, and whether uh, his efforts in Ukraine are, are the beginning or the end of his, uh, of his uh, sense of legacy. Well, thank you, Senator, for all those opening comments. Um, I'll just say again here that I work very hard not to live inside the brain of, of President Putin, so I'm not going to speculate what his end state would be. I would simply say that there, one should have considerable concern when you look at the public statements that he's been making uh, with increasing frequency, including over the last six months, to the effect that uh, Russia and Ukraine are one nation, et cetera, and not respecting their sovereignty and territorial integrity, and his, his laments about the, the death of the Soviet Union. You know, there, I have had the pleasure and the honor to know so many Russians over so many decades, ever since I was a student and was there not too long ago. And, and it is my firm belief that 
The citizens of Russia don't want a war with Ukraine. They don't want body bags coming home. They want better health care, better schools, better roads, better broadband. They want to live uh, better. And, and President Putin could so much more worthwhile serve his own people at this moment when we are all having to build back better. So I, I hope that... Uh, he thinks about what he owes his own people before uh, seeking to acquire more territory. I, I think we, I, I share your desire not to live within uh, President Putin's brain. Uh, at, at the same time, there, there are elements that we obviously look at and try and uh, draw uh, uh, inferences from. Uh, one relates to something that is not, not connected to, to Ukraine, uh, but that is his commitment to his nuclear arsenal. I think there were many of us that were hoping that as our arsenals respectively got older uh, and would be retired, potentially, that we could reduce our, our nuclear uh, investment uh, and, uh, and could, could shrink our nuclear armament. Uh, obviously, China joining the, uh, the nuclear race uh, would have changed that to a certain degree. But Russia took a different course. Uh, Putin decided to invest massively, not so-called build back better, but to uh, completely modernize his, his nuclear arsenal. What, what is the status of that at this stage, and, and how does that compare to our own? Well, thank you, Senator. We'll get, we'll get you a fulsome briefing, but simply to say that the, the New START treaty that was negotiated uh, some 10 years ago uh, and which was extended by the administration uh, caps long, the long-range nuclear arsenal, but you are right that that President Putin continues to augment intermediate-range forces and short-range nuclear forces, as well as build new exquisite weapons like his uh, hypersonics, which are outside of any arms control regime, and to try to compete with the, uh, in, in building up their long-range conventional forces as well, which is why uh, President Biden at the Geneva summit in June uh, pressed President Putin, and Putin did agree to get back into strategic stability talks bilaterally. Uh, and we've had two rounds of those, so I would say we're still at the nascent stage uh, to try to come to some, uh, to try to get back into arms control, to try to reduce the threat from these weapons, and try to deal with asymmetries and concerns. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, when my uh, great-grandfather came to this country, he would have been considered a Polish immigrant because that's the country from which he came. Uh, but he didn't consider himself Polish. He wrote on his uh, immigration card that the country he came from was Ukraine. Now, that was curious because that country didn't exist at the time. But he had a sense of where he was from. He had a sense of the country that he believed should exist. The story of Ukrainian nationalism has been a, a confusing one, an elusive one, um, a land that has been occupied over and over by contesting armies. But something different has happened in that country since what has been referred to as the revolution of dignity. Um, I got the chance to be there on the Maidan during uh, the midst of that revolution with uh, you um, and Senator McCain. Um, and as to the question of how easy an invasion will be, as to the question of what a counterinsurgency may look like, as Senator Romney posits, um, there is inside it a question of what Ukrainian patriotism and nationalism 
looks like today compared to, say, what it felt like and looked like in 1941. Um, Putin is making a bet here that um, Ukraine, an invasion of Ukraine today may look like it did 60 years ago. That's probably not the case. They have not only gotten a taste of independence since their break from the Soviet Union, but in the last 10 years, they've got a sense of what real self-determination looks like. Um, and this forging of identity that has happened in the last eight years, I think is relevant to this question of what this invasion might look like and feel like for an invading army. Just a minute or two on what you have seen uh, with respect to the development of Ukraine's sense of self um, since uh, the uh, events of 2013. Well, thank you, Senator, and, and I agree with you from the revolution of dignity, which really was about Ukrainians all across the country, not just in Kyiv, but also in Ukraine's east, saying that they wanted the right to have a closer uh, relationship with Europe, to live more as Europeans live, through the ten almost 10 years that have, well, eight years that have... Uh, uh, have passed since, uh, I think Ukraine has really come back to its sense of independence and sovereignty and uh, a path that very much they would like to look more like Paris and Berlin than like what they see in Sverdlovsk and Ekaterinburg at the moment today. And that has to do with individuals being able to live better and work better and have a, have a cleaner, more open choice uh, in the way they forge their lives. Uh, but I think it's also true that the state of Ukrainian nationalism has always been fierce, going back to 1917 or wherever you want to start counting. Um, and to bet against Ukrainian patriotism is, is very, very dangerous, as a lot of Russians have found uh, already. And unfortunately, there are many, many reasons why none of us should want a war. It will be extremely bloody and difficult for Ukraine, but it will also be extremely bloody and difficult for Russia, and many of them will not go home as they came. Uh, second, um, very well said. Um, second, on this question of Russia being a, a very complicated and advanced gas station, um, gas stations can't stay in business unless they have customers. And Russia has all sorts of customers in and around its periphery. Many customers that see Russia as an adversary are still doing a tremendous amount of business. We passed legislation out of this committee uh, several years ago, signed by President Trump at the time, that would allow for the U.S. Development Finance Corporation to do uh, additional deals with countries that want to make themselves energy independent. And we allowed that to happen not just in the developing world, but uh, in other nations as well. The Three Seas Initiative is um, a really important uh, initiative linking the, uh, essentially the, 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 the ring of countries that are either former republics or satellite states of uh, the Soviet Union together. Um, they're begging for U.S. participation in their projects necessary to make them more energy independent of Russia. Um, isn't this an opportunity for the United States to step up and take some of these customers away from Russia's gas station? Absolutely. As we have been doing with our support for more LNG terminals around, uh, around Europe for, for many years, as we are doing now in our support for 
um, you know, green alternatives, not just in the United States, but, but in Europe as well, and many, many U.S. companies are involved with that. But that particular belt of three seas countries is absolutely crucial, as you've said. I would just note, Mr. Chairman, I, I, I don't think we need to persuade um, Secretary Newland, but right now there are no plans in the administration to put DFC dollars behind three C's, something that this committee, I think, in a bipartisan way could work on moving forward. Thank you. Appreciate that. Senator Rubio. Secretary Newland, I, I, I agree with all of the assessments uh, that have been made about Vladimir Putin that he seeks, you know, to establish great power parity with the United States and therefore tries to... Uh, show force and power around the world. I also think he's driven to some extent, maybe a great extent, uh, by the ego and the drive to bring Ukraine and, and to at least a Russian sphere of influence, if not into the Russian Federation as, uh, and cement his legacy as the uniter of a of greater Russia. I think there's a third factor here that I'm curious whether you agree with, and that is that he also thinks that the West, and I by no means am a fan of Vladimir Putin, and I'm confident that they're not fans of mine, but they're thinking, as irrational as we may think it is, that we want to turn Ukraine, the West in general, the U.S. in specific, into a base of operation to threaten their security and or to undermine you know, their internal cohesion and the like. And therefore, he's using this as an opportunity to try to impose neutrality, at a minimum, impose neutrality on Ukraine. And if that is, in fact, at least the primary motivator in the short term of this threat of military action, uh, then I would imagine that he's already been publicly messaging what his asks are. The first is that we would pull back NATO forces from anywhere near their western border. The, the second is to completely rule out the admission, probably not just of Ukraine, but Georgia as a member of NATO. And, and the third is to stop arming Ukraine. Of those three conditions that he's publicly messaged already, would the United States agree to any of those three? All of those would be unacceptable. Um, let me ask you about another trend that I think is disturbing if you sort of follow it. On the one hand, we see a growing amount of what appears to be, you know, including here in our own, I've seen some here domestically too, but this messaging that, uh, you know, Zelensky is a U.S. and Western puppet, he's ineffective, he's corrupt, and um, that he's not acting in the best interest of the Ukrainian people. So that disinformation, came in. one of the things we're seeing in real time is what hybrid warfare looks like to prepare the groundwork. At the same time, sadly, as we see a confederation of oligarchs, opposition politicians, former government officials, all with their own agendas looking to undermine Zelensky. At the same time as some of this is happening, I imagine some of them perhaps in coordination with the Kremlin, others just doing it because they want to be president instead. What options do we have on both fronts to deal with this sort of disinformation hybrid warfare campaign that they're undertaking to prepare the ground for all of it? And, and in particular, on addressing these oligarchs, former officials, and others who are clearly understand that what they are doing would aid uh, Russian efforts and Putin's efforts, uh, and nonetheless continue because of some because of personal ambition, others, I imagine, because of financial gain. Uh, to, to, to move along this track. So what options do we have on those two things? So among the many counsels that we're giving to Ukrainians and that President Zelensky is also now giving to his country is that at this moment of challenge for Ukraine, unity among patriots, unity among Ukrainians who 
believe in the sovereignty and territorial independence of their country is absolutely essential and that none of them should fall into these traps that the Kremlin is setting to divide them or pit them against each other. Um, you know that uh, democracy is a relatively new sport in Ukraine. They uh, occasionally play it rough, as, as others do, uh, but now is absolutely a moment for unity. And particularly with regard to disinformation efforts, efforts to blame the other guy for what you yourself are doing. Um, we have encouraged the Ukrainians to um, apply that best adage, which is that um, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant and to be very vigilant about exposing Russian disinformation activities and payments and uh, little gray men and little green men who are trying to infect politics. And, and that is something that they... Uh, must do in this moment. Well, thank you. Uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Madam Secretary, for your service. Uh, I want to begin by associating myself, myself with the uh, comments the Chairman made at the outset, which is, uh, number one, uh, that uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin, should understand that there's going to be a strong, unified um, severe response uh, should he uh, decide to invade Ukraine. And I'm a big believer that uh, sanctions are actually more useful and effective when you lay them out in advance and say to a foreign leader, these are the consequences if you take these actions, rather than trying to reverse action after the fact uh, through sanctions. Uh, that's why uh, last session, Senator Rubio and I introduced uh, the Deter Act uh, because we thought it was important to make it clear what would happen if there was interference in U.S. elections going forward with a very strict set of sanctions. Uh, unfortunately, the previous administration opposed that approach, uh, but I'm pleased to see that uh, the Biden administration is taking that approach with respect to what's happening in Ukraine. And obviously, those are far more useful uh, if we do so on a unified basis with our allies, as you've indicated. Um, the other thing that we need to, I think, underscore, uh, and I know it's been discussed at this hearing, um, is the determination of the people of Ukraine. Uh, because uh, there was a time, a long time ago, uh, where Putin was not viewed in Ukraine as a, as, as a threatening individual uh, compared to where it is today. Um, and. I, I think he should be disabused of any illusions that he's going to be greeted in Ukraine uh, as some kind of liberator or people who support him. Can you talk a little bit about um, the Ukrainian people's sentiment uh, for, for Putin? We have polling data. Uh, we also know that after Putin's uh, action uh, to annex Crimea, that sort of sent a shockwave. Uh, through much of Ukraine. So uh, if he thinks he's going to just sort of have a little bit of a fight um, uh, and no resistance, uh, I think it's important that he be disabused of that fact. Can you speak to that? Well, thanks, Senator. And I, I should have said this in response to Senator Murphy as well. Uh, you know, Ukraine and, and Russia, obviously, the they're, Peoples have lived side by side for forever, and there's a lot of intermarriage, and there's a lot of trade back and forth in, in, in the old days. And, you know, before the 
invasion of Crimea and of Donbass, I think, you know, 60, 70% of Ukrainians had a favorable view of Russia. And today, after not only those invasions and cut, biting off pieces of Ukraine, but also all of the stresses and tensions uh, that have ensued otherwise, I think the support, friendly feeling towards Russia is an, uh, among Ukrainians is at an all-time high, about 12%, something like that. So this is what Putin's own policies have wrought. Um, and he needs to understand that. And I just hope that his advisors are telling him the truth about how Ukrainians already feel, let alone how they will feel if they are aggressed. Uh, thank you. I think it's important to underscore that uh, because uh, you never know what his advisors are saying. Uh, but uh, it's pretty clear that the Ukrainian people have a, a good sense of, um, you know, what, what Putin's mindset is. Uh, because their views of Russia uh, changed after his actions against uh, Crimea and uh, the Eastern uh, actions in Eastern Ukraine. So um, I, I think that uh, it would be a very bloody fight. Uh, lots of people uh, would be killed and injured. Uh, and I think it's really important that the international community uh, in the United States do as, what, as we're doing today, which is uh, letting people know that there'll be a very strong, severe reaction. I appreciate the president's message in the phone call today. Um, and you may have covered this, but what is your sense about whether our allies, our European allies and others, are willing to support us in not just sanctions against individuals, we're talking about sectoral, sectoral sanctions, right, against the financial industry, banking industry, other areas, um, the kind of things that Senator Rubio and I laid out in the Deter Act. Uh, what, what would be, how do you assess their support for that? Uh, again, we've been working with our allies uh, intensively since the president was at the G20 meetings in Rome, and our sense is that their appreciation for the dangers we may confront and therefore their appreciation that the deterrent that we put up needs to be real and needs to be unified is growing by the day as evidenced by the very strong statement we had from the head of the European Commission just today uh, in speaking to her ambassadorial corps, and I think you'll hear more of that uh, going forward. Thank, thank you. Th thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We live in dangerous times, don't we? And uh, this is a deadly serious moment in the history of Ukraine and in the history of the region. Um, I thank you, um, Ambassador Newland, for your time and effort and spending some time with us last night as well. Um, I know that President Biden spoke with President Putin on this subject today, and I look forward to getting the readout from that. I know we all do. Senator Rich and I sent a letter last week uh, to the President urging him to show absolute support for Ukraine and to let President Putin know and know in certain terms that there would be serious consequences and also to reject the unreasonable Kremlin demands. I'd like that letter without objection to be uh, included in the record. Without objection. Um, I visited the Maidan in uh, 2014. Uh, the tires were still smoldering and uh, that revolution of dignity changed everything. You know, Ukraine decided to turn to us and to the West and to freedom and democracy. And it was a momentous decision. They chose to stand with us. 
and now it's our turn to stand with them. And we've done that over the years. I mean, if you look at what happened with regard to the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, um, which I co-authored, over the past six years, the United States has transferred defense articles, conducted training with the Ukrainian military. Um, we have been very engaged. I, I would ask you, um, Ambassador, this week we have the NDAA likely to be voted on and, and likely it will include an increase in that lethal defensive funding. What defensive weapons has Ukraine asked for and what is the State Department willing to provide them under an expedited process? Uh, so, Senator, we had a chance to talk about this at, at some length in the classified session last night, and I appreciate the, the time and the detail that we were able to go into there. I think uh, given the fact that the threat is now coming not simply from the east, but from three sides of Ukraine, uh, what they are seeking is largely more of the defensive lethal equipment that we have already given them, uh, these same kinds of things that you actually don't deploy in an offensive way, but that are essential for, for defenses. Anti-aircraft, uh, anti-tank. Uh, exactly, exactly. Weaponry. Um, let me ask you this. If there is an invasion, uh, I believe that Russia will not face anything like the same Ukrainian resistance it did in 2014. With all due respect, at that time, the Ukrainian military had not been modernized. Uh, they were disorganized. Um, they were a new country, in essence. The Ukrainian military has now made significant strides in professionalism and enacted important defense reforms. And again, the United States and our NATO allies have been very involved in that. What domestic factors is President Putin considering when weighing the option to invade Ukraine? Does he have sufficient domestic support, despite uh, that all calculations indicate that Russia is going to experience high casualties? Has he factored in the cost of additional sanctions, including severe sanctions such as denial of access to the SWIFT banking mechanism? I think it's important that uh, not just President Putin, as he got the message very clearly from President Biden today, but that the Russian people also appreciate the kind of things that are being contemplated and the kind of risk that their president is potentially taking them into, including for their sons and daughters who serve. Uh, I would just add to your list with regard to the capability of the Ukrainian forces, and obviously Russia is so much bigger and their forces so much bigger, but Ukraine is better trained now. But in addition to that, many, many Ukrainians have served uh, and are now returned to civilian life, uh, some of them with that training as well. So that's something to factor in. Um, I haven't seen any, any Russian polling, but what I have seen is the Kremlin uh, spreading uh, huge amounts of disinformation, including inside Russia, to try to make the case that Russia is under threat from Ukraine, and nothing could be further from the truth. There is no threat to Russia from Ukraine. So he's trying to prepare the ground in his own um, body politic, but again, he might do better to listen to the needs that they have as they try to come out of COVID, which have much more to do with their daily lives and their roads and schools and hospitals and healthcare. Well, I agree with that. and. Uh I think it would be a grave mistake if Putin were to decide to invade again. And I think this time he would meet a very different and more capable resistance. And um, my hope is that in the next several days, we'll be able to 
continue to send those strong messages through a vote on the National Defense Authorization Bill, uh, but also in other ways to let Russia know and know in certain terms of the severe sanctions that would accompany any kind of invasion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Yes, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, an important hearing. Thank you, Secretary Newland. So I have a question and a concern. My question follows up at the very end of your um, dialogue with Senator Johnson. You said your belief would be that if Russia further invaded the uh, country of Ukraine, that the Nord Stream pipeline would be suspended. And I want to pick up on that. The pipeline has been the subject of much controversy here. Um, you know, no one is pro-pipeline in the sense of making Russia happy, but we have allies that are important to us who are pro-pipeline, and the administration and the past administration have tried to balance that. Do you think our European allies, including those who've been more in the pro-pipeline camp, would find a Russian invasion of Ukraine so troubling that they would be willing to work together with us to either stop the pipeline from being certified, it's in a certification process, or stop the operation of the pipeline. In other words, would an invasion of Ukraine tip the balance so that our allies would join together with us to make sure that the Nord Stream pipeline was truly suspended, as you indicated? I believe that it absolutely would, Senator. As you know, this is gratuitous anyway. They don't need any additional energy from, from Russia. And, and the German government is brand new, so we're, we're, we're working with them on this issue. But again, without putting too many words in their mouth, because they are new, while the government in the past has been somewhat pro-pipeline, your view of the new government is they would view a Russian invasion of Ukraine as sufficiently dire that that would cause them to maybe reassess the, the pluses and minuses of the Nord Stream pipeline from their standpoint. So the president's having his first opportunity today, perhaps even as we speak, to speak with Olaf Schultz uh, now that he is chancellor, as mm -hmm. Chancellor Schultz. Um, so we'll have a better sense of that. But I would say that we have already been speaking to him in his role as finance minister. Um, and I have no doubt that he understands the seriousness of the situation that we are facing. Now I want to raise a concern that I have, and I'm I want you to tell me whether my concern is a fair one, but I'm going to be particularly happy if you actually tell me that I, I don't need to be concerned about this. So I have a concern, but maybe I need to have a concern. We've talked about the crushing sanctions that could fall upon Russia should they um, push west in a military invasion of Ukraine. And we've talked about the kinds of sanctions that we might contemplate together with our allies. My concern is this. If the United States and the West's response to a military invasion is sanctions, but no military response. Obviously, we're providing military aid to Ukraine, and we've been generous in that way, but if we are not willing to help a Ukrainian military that's 50,000 people matched up against Russia, I would think that China would conclude, boy, the West sure isn't going to come to the aid of Taiwan if we were to do something on Taiwan. Um, because China would conclude we're much more militarily powerful than Russia is. And the status questions about Taiwan and sovereignty are a little bit murkier than those about Ukraine. And there's no NATO in the Indo-Pacific. We have allies in the Indo-Pacific, but we don't have a NATO with a charter 
with a self-defense article, I think China would determine if the West's response to a military invasion went as far as sanctions but no further that the United States and other nations would be extremely unlikely to use military force to counter a military invasion of Taiwan. And I think Taiwan would likely conclude the same thing. So I'm very concerned about that. And I wonder, is that a fair concern uh, that I have about how the Chinese and the Taiwanese would view the West's unwillingness to provide more significant military support to stop an invasion by Russia? Is my concern a fair one, or is my concern overwrought? Senator, in this setting, I would simply say that this is a moment of testing. And I believe that both autocrats around the world and our friends around the world will watch extremely carefully uh, what we do, and it will have implications for generations. And those, and those implications could go far beyond uh, Ukraine. They could go well beyond Europe, yes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Newland, the, uh, you know, over the years I've traveled to Ukraine numerous times. Uh, the eight members of the Senate, uh, a number of members of this very committee, were uh, in Ukraine when Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimea in 2014. Uh, on another trip, traveled with Senator McCain and Senator Cotton. We went to eastern Ukraine, uh, met with courageous men and women fighting for their country's freedom and their future. Uh, I mentioned this to you last night, because every day they battle along the front lines against separatist forces, uh, and you know more than 14,000 Ukrainians have already died in fighting in that eastern region. So I know firsthand the, the heart and the courage and determination of these freedom fighters. And Ukrainian armed forces fight bravely. They fight fiercely. Uh, they don't back down. Ukrainians are absolutely willing to die for their homeland. So if Vladimir Putin thinks that he invades and it's going to be easy, it is not. I will tell you, I believe much Russian blood will be spilled and there will be Russians going home in body bags if he invades this country. You know, the, the United States and our allies, I believe, must do more to deter Russia by increasing the costs of aggression. And I'm always looking for ways to do that. Uh, we, I think we need enduring strategic response from the U.S., from Europe, and from NATO. So I'm looking in terms of how we can respond to put Putin's bold and dangerous behavior away, uh, because the, the repercussions go far beyond Ukraine. And we, we need to make sure we don't fail this test. When I talked to President Zelensky in September of this year, he said they needed anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, better radar. And that's in that location. I'm, I'm asking what you believe President Putin's ultimate objective is and how we need to stay ahead of, of his efforts. Again, I... Uh work hard to stay out of the inside of, of President Putin's brain. That said, uh, he's been pretty clear about his regret at the fall of the Soviet Union, at his regret that Ukraine and Russia are no longer one country, um, and, at his, and about his skepticism with, with regard to Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence. Um, and I think that's what's motivating here, is that he may see uh, he may be trying to leave as his legacy 
um, the reconstitution of, of something that was rejected by the people of the, the lands uh, that he is moving on. You've been an observer for a long time. I remember discussing with the Bob Strauss's book that while he was there as ambassador, or was it for President Reagan, that you were there as a young staff member in, in Moscow at the U.S. Embassy in Russia. So you've been studying this a long time. You know how Putin uses energy uh, as a weapon. I think earlier today you said energy is the cash cow that funds these military deployments. And with high oil prices now, $80 a barrel, if not going higher, uh, I think his budget is based on 40 uh, from what I've been following over the, over the years in my time in the Senate. Uh, that is putting a lot of money and giving him firepower that he might not have had at, at previous times. So, so I want to ask about how the way he uses energy as a geopolitical weapon. Because in, in July, President Biden and German Chancellor, then Chancellor Merkel, agreed to reimpose sanctions if President Putin used gas as a geopolitical weapon. Uh, since then, the world has watched Russia use natural gas to coerce and to manipulate countries all around Europe, uh, severely limited the flow of gas through Ukraine, uh, no longer delivers gas to Hungary through Ukraine uh, due to a side agreement that, where they can bypass it. Moldova has declared a state of emergency due to Russia threatening to cut off gas, and they only avoided a crisis by agreeing to a longer-term contract. You have a as physical construction of Nord Stream 2 nears completion. Putin reduced gas production and deliveries to dramatically increase prices. Um, the spot prices soared. You know, wh where do you see the Biden-Merkel promise sanctions against Putin for using gas as a weapon? So I think you're referring to the, the July agreement between the U.S. Mm -hmm. and Germany, which uh, sought to address the stress on Ukraine that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was putting into effect. And so that agreement uh, speaks to a number of things. First of all, helping the Ukrainians themselves wean themselves off of dependence on, on Russian energy and, and make a, a green transition, but also uh, a commitment that if uh, Ukraine faced aggression and pressure uh, of a significant kind from, from Russia in the energy field that it would have a direct impact on, on Nord Stream 2. So, you know, I think reiterating that commitment and hearing the, the new German government reiterate those commitments will be very important, and that's something that we're seeking in this context. Yeah, just and finally, that I mean, I just have concerns if we don't abide by a Biden Merkel agreement that we send to Putin, uh, which shows if we don't keep our word, then it makes you wonder what threats of additional sanctions will have uh, on P Putin in that situation. I agree with you. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, uh, thank you for being here and for your great work. And many of my colleagues are focusing upon Nord Stream 2 and its geopolitical implications. I want to discuss our own complicity in contributing to the financial engine powering Putin's destabilizing behavior, our addiction to Russian oil in the United States. According to the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, roughly 80% of Russian oil and gas revenues come from oil, while only 20% come from natural gas. The United States imported more than 800,000 barrels of Russian oil a day on average in June of 2021. And the price of that oil is skyrocketing. Russia is now the United States' number two supplier of crude oil and petroleum products in 2021. We only import uh, more oil and petroleum products from Canada. 
Most years, anywhere from one-third to more than one-half of Russian federal revenue is the direct result of their fossil fuel exports and profits. And the roughly 800,000 barrels of oil per day that Americans import contribute to an estimated $20 billion annually in American dollars going directly into the pockets of Russian petro-oligarchs. Oil profits also fuel corrupt actions and human rights violations by Putin and his cronies, actions which have been detailed over years by investigative journalists and activists, including Alexei Navalny, who Putin is trying to brutally silence. And yet, we just continue to feed their revenues year to year by allowing their oil to flood our markets. And that oil is coming directly from Siberia to the United States of America and ultimately into the pockets uh, of Putin and his cronies. Um, do the US dollars that uh, we spend on Russian oil um, contribute to Russia's ability to engage in abuses at home and malign activities throughout the region? Well, Senator, thank you for all that. I think you know that the United States doesn't and our suppliers don't buy, we're not engaged in contracts with countries. We buy oil on the open market. And there are certain kinds of um, heavy and dirty oil that uh, we need in certain parts of the US that Russia is a major supplier of. So I think your question is well put, whether in the context of where we know this revenue goes, uh, those independent free market purchasers of that particular source um, might want to, um, how should we say, purvey their oil with, with a conscience. Yeah, well, again, my, my concern is that while we talk about natural gas going into Europe, um, we actually import at least as much oil from Russia as well. And those revenues are going into the very same oligarchs' pockets and ultimately uh, to uh, Putin. So my concern here is that uh, uh, we um, that we understand this and that we start to think about how we can use those oil imports that go to the United States uh, as a weapon back at Russia as well, as we're talking about sanctions, as we're talking about putting strong restrictions upon them. Uh, all of that oil that's coming into our country uh, is something that I'm sure uh, causes a real uh, bemusement to Putin knowing that. And, uh, and I think the Germans are aware of it as well, that as we we're trying to preach temperance from a bar stool, uh, and we ourselves have to square up our own domestic oil policy since so much of the revenues that Putin gets comes from American consumers at the pump. Um, so when, when, uh, uh, when the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline continues, the, it did so during the Trump administration, uh, including even after sanctions were imposed upon, by the United States. Is that correct? So the vast majority of this pipeline, 90% of it, was constructed during the period of the Trump administration. And no sanctions were imposed until two or three days before President Biden took office. So there were many opportunities for the Trump administration to take action, which it did not take right. against I think it's important, again, that... Uh, when Joe Biden became president, the pipeline was over 90% complete already. 
That's right. Yeah, and, uh, and so from my perspective, I just think it's very important for us to understand what the Trump administration was doing during those four years, uh, and that we just not ignore the whole history that got us to this point. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for your great service. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Newland, we're here in a circumstance that neither you nor I wanted to be here. Sadly, what you predicted to this committee, what I predicted to this committee, and indeed what members on both sides of the aisles knew might happen, appears to be happening. We have some 100,000 Russian troops massed on the border of Ukraine, and according to declassified documents from the Biden administration, the odds are significant that we will see a military invasion of Ukraine by Russia in the next 90 days. This was entirely preventable. This disaster is the direct consequence of political decisions made by Joe Biden. One decision in particular caused this disaster. And it was the decision to throw away our national security victory on Nord Stream 2 and instead to hand Vladimir Putin a multi-billion dollar generational gift. Now, just a moment ago with Senator Markey, you were asked what are the Democratic talking points, which are, number one, the vast majority of the pipeline was completed under Donald Trump. Well, yes, that happens to be true. It was completed before the sanctions legislation passed. I authored the sanctions legislation along with Senator Shaheen on this committee. Sanctions legislation passed in December of 2019. December of 2019, over 90% of the pipeline was completed. And what happened? Putin stopped building the pipeline the day President Trump signed that bill into law. Not the next day, not the next week, that day. The sanctions worked exactly as designed. And for over a year, nothing happened. The, the pipeline was a hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean. So an over 90% complete pipeline is a 0% complete pipeline until you connect it and turn it on. When did Putin begin constructing the pipeline? Joe Biden was sworn in as president on January 20th, 2021. Four days later, January 24th, 2021, is when Putin began building the pipeline again. So we had succeeded with a bipartisan victory stopping this pipeline until Joe Biden and Kamala Harris came into office and gave away our leverage and surrendered. Now, why does that matter? Vladimir Putin didn't wake up yesterday and decide he wanted to invade Ukraine. He has wanted to do that for a long time, and indeed he has. In 2014, he invaded Ukraine, he invaded Crimea, but he stopped. He didn't go all the way to Kiev, and one of the major reasons why is because of the Ukrainian energy infrastructure, that he could not risk damaging or destroying the ability to get Russian gas to Europe. Nord Stream 2 was launched shortly after that initial Crimea invasion. Because if Putin can get an alternative means of getting gas to Europe, he can send the tanks into Kiev without fear of damaging his ability to get to market. This summer, 
when Joe Biden gave away a massive bipartisan foreign policy victory, our allies, Ukraine and Poland, put out a formal statement on July 21st saying the Biden administration's surrender to Putin, quote, has created political, military, and energy threat for Ukraine and Central Europe. They were right. We are seeing this threat today. Now, here's the good news. The administration in which you serve, and I will note, you argued to do the right thing. You were overruled by your political superiors in the White House. But the Biden administration can still do the right thing. Secretary Newland, is it true or false that if President Biden decided to, he could sanction Nord Stream 2 AG today? Uh, the waiver is currently in place. It could be lifted, yes. Okay, so he could sanction then today. Let me ask you a question. If the Biden administration imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG, if it halted the certification of the pipeline so that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline did not go online, would that make invasion of Ukraine more likely or less likely? Senator, it's the German government that has paused the certification of the pipeline itself right now. That certification is not going forward. I, you know that we believe this pipeline is a bad deal for Europe and a bad pipeline, but I do not believe that anything we would have done with regard to Nord Stream 2 would have changed Putin's calculus with regard to the buildup we have around Ukraine today. I believe he has an ambition. So, so, so let me ask you it another way. If Nord Stream 2 goes online and is operational, does that make an invasion of Ukraine more likely or less likely? Nord Stream 2 is not currently on track to become if operational. If it does, I'm asking a hypothetical. Be, if Nord Stream 2 goes online, I don't think it's coincidental that the predicted date for an invasion is almost exactly when certification is predicted to be over. I don't think that's accidental. So my question is this, if Nord Stream 2 goes online, does that make invasion of Ukraine more likely or less likely? Uh, I believe that President Putin will make his decisions with regard to Ukraine, irregardless of what happens to Nord Stream 2. I believe he has an aspiration to have control of Ukraine. Well, but he didn't do that until the Biden administration waived sanctions. From 2014 until today, he hasn't done that, and it was exactly what Ukraine and Poland warned us, that when this president surrendered to Putin, it would create a security crisis in Ukraine. That's what it's done. Uh, I think we have had all of our colleagues uh, were present or desirous in WebEx to ask questions. Um, can I ask you one last set of questions? Um, is Nord Stream 2 the reason that Putin is supposedly complaining about expansion of uh, NATO? I'm sorry, Chairman, one more time. Is Nord Stream 2 the reason that Putin is complaining about expansion of NATO? No. Uh, is Nord Stream 2 
the reason that uh, Putin complains about supposedly defending Russian speakers in Ukraine? No. Is Nord Stream 2 the reason uh, that Putin alleges that Ukraine is not actually an independent country? No. Uh, I could go down a list. Is Nord Stream 2 the reason that Putin says that Ukraine is actually the provoker in this set of circumstances? No. And Chairman, if I may, I would just like to put one more fact in the record, which is that between December of 2019, when the PISA legislation was passed, and January 19th of 2021, there was only one sanction applied under it. And since January of 2021, the Biden-Harris administration has sanctioned 17 vessels and eight people under the PISA legislation in an effort to raise the costs for Nord Stream 2. Now, our colleagues suggested that Putin stopped at Crimea because he didn't want to ruin the Ukrainian energy infrastructure. But isn't it true that had he marched forward at that time, he would have had probably the control of Ukraine, probably bloody even then, in the different circumstances than far more capable, far more capable Ukrainian military now, and still Ukrainian nationalism. But nonetheless, that he could have marched forward, and actually he would have controlled the Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Is that a fair statement? And in fact, you could argue that in the Donbass, he did take control of some 40% of Ukraine's coal reserves, which were a major energy input. So the fact of the matter is, as much as one would want to suggest that the question of sanctioning Nord Stream 2 was the alpha, the omega, the reason why Putin is acting today, Putin is acting today because he wants to reconstitute the Russia he knew, the one he laments consistently about, that should be reconstituted. And that's his whole goal, regardless of what happens about Nord Stream or not. And frankly, Chairman, if we did not have the working relationship that we have with the German government now, uh, we would not be in a position to build the sanctions package that we're working on. Uh, I hope the one thing that... uh, anyone in the world who is watching this hearing today takes away is that even on some of the most contentious issues of the day, on this one, there is overwhelming, broad, bipartisan support for Ukraine. There's overwhelming bipartisan support for its territorial integrity. There's overwhelming bipartisan support for swift and robust action And uh, after conversations with some of the members of the committee, I look to galvanize that in some tangible way legislatively as we wait for the days ahead as to what may or may not happen. Um, With the thanks of the committee for your appearance both here today and yesterday in a classified session, the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, December 8th. Uh, Ask questions for the record be submitted no later than that time, and this hearing is adjourned.